This is Transistor.fm. Hello and welcome to Build Your SaaS. This is the behind the scenes story of building a web app in 2020. I'm Justin Jackson. Uh, John is still away. We're hoping to have him back next week. But this week, I have an interview that Nathan, oh, does he say Bashaw or Bashaw? I think it's Nathan Bashaw uh, that he did with me for his Divinations newsletter. If you haven't checked out Nathan's newsletter yet, you really need to go check it out. It's divinations.substack.com. It's a paid newsletter. It's actually the first paid newsletter I think I've ever subscribed to. And he's talking about business strategy for early stage startups. And, you know, with Transistor, I think we've reached a point where. I needed to start thinking about strategy more. And he takes like these really deep dives uh, into business theory and, you know, doing all this research on, on strategy and then basically puts it into this nice package that you can read, uh, you know, in your email client or on the web. I'm really enjoying it. I highly recommend it. And yeah, he interviewed me for an upcoming feature. And so here it is. So I'm, I, I've read all about Transistor, and I listened to a lot of the episodes of Build Your SaaS. And as far as I can tell, the original inspiration for the idea is this observation that, um, you know, podcasts are becoming this thing that not just sort of like hobbyists do or people that like work at NPR or something like that, but also that businesses may want to create as like a form of content marketing. Is that, am I getting that right? As like kind of the original inspiration? Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, like anything... The, the reason you start anything is multifaceted, right? And so I think, you know, I was at a time in my life where it made sense to start something new. I was pretty hungry to start something new. And when John came to me, John Buddha, he's the co-founder. Uh, I mean, there's, there's just so many layers to this. But the, the market observation that I made that was interesting to me is I've been podcasting since 2012, and it was mostly people like me, people who are just doing it for fun on the side, maybe for a little bit of ad money, but nothing, um, there, there was no real professional market for podcasting. And I started noticing Basecamp has a podcast, Cards Against Humanity has a podcast. That was one of the major motivators for us to build Transistor is that John worked there. And right. so we knew we would have a paying customer right away. And CodePen has a podcast and all of the, and MasterCard has a podcast. So there's all of these branded shows. And, you know, when I did the math in my head, like Basecamp is a pretty small company, but they're employing two people to work on the, on the podcast. And, you know, back of napkin math, you assume that would be at least $200,000 a year, maybe more. Yeah. And of course, all of these shows are going to need tools. And so the original hypothesis is maybe we could be to podcasting what WP Engine was to WordPress hosting. So we'll be, mm. or Wistia was to video hosting, will be the, the option for businesses. 
And I don't think it didn't, the hypothesis didn't exactly turn out that way, but uh, it was at least, I, I noticed that something was different than what it had been before. Like n- increasingly companies were saying, we're going to have a blog, we're going to be on social media, we're going to have a YouTube channel, and oh, we should also have a podcast. It was another item on their checklist. And so totally. I felt like, okay, well, maybe there, there's now something here, uh, whereas before it was a lot of DIYers and hobbyists and, and folks that didn't want to spend a lot of money. Right, right, right. Well, um, did you have specific theories of like better like marketing channels or sales process or pricing or like product functionality that you thought would help you kind of go after this market? I'm talking about the initial inspiration too. I I definitely want to get to like how it's evolved and what you've learned and all that stuff, but like the initial inspiration. Yeah, there's a few things. First of all, John had built a podcast hosting platform before. So we had some experience. We knew from his experience uh, on the programming side and the design side what would the initial version look like? We also had a paying customer at Cards Against Humanity. And not only that, John was interacting with all of these other podcasters that were using the Cards Against Humanity studio for as their home base. So like friendshipping is out of there. Uh, I think there's like six podcasts that get recorded out of there regularly. So was this like right around the time when they opened that up? Because I remember hearing that they were opening a podcast studio in Chicago. Is this all kind of happening around the same time? Uh, I mean, they have multiple podcast studios in that office. It's crazy. Oh, wow. They have uh, like a big kind of like radio style uh, place where the sound booth is over here and it's all glassed off. And then they have two other kind of smaller recording studios. And so, yeah, there's he was interacting with folks all the time that were, uh, you know, creating shows or part of shows and he had a sense of what they wanted. Um, so I think that was, that was helpful. I mean, I built up a pretty big audience by this point. And so I knew people that had podcasts and so I could ask them what would make you switch? Like if, if you, you know, if you were going to switch, what would make you switch? Or why did you even choose the host you're with right now? And what's keeping you there? And so I was able to get a lot of insight from that. And uh, I mean, there were so many things. There was also, uh, right, I was yeah. friends with Nathan Barry, and I'd seen him launch ConvertKit. And I'd also seen how a substantial amount of his revenue came from affiliates. And so... I knew that that was probably going to be one of the channels we were going to try. And uh, I'd seen, you know, he does 30% of revenue recurring for affiliates. And that was very motivating for a bunch of folks in his audience. And knowing that he serves this group of people that kind of call themselves creators or creatives, um, and that's kind of a generic term now, but you know, this group of people that are creating stuff now and maybe aspirationally wanting to do it for a living or it's just part of their identity. Uh, I knew that that was going to be part of our audience probably. And so that was another insight. Uh, I had formed a relationship through with uh, Jason Cohen from WP Engine. And so I was able to see how he had built that business and which is in many ways different than ConvertKit. So 
I had all of these kind of inputs and John had all of these inputs and uh, our initial version was kind of based on that of, okay, well, we're going to need something for aspirational kind of creative folks Mm. to be able to get in. And so $19 a month is probably a good starting point. And then we'll probably go 49 and 99 and that will be where we start. And actually, the one thing I will say, one of the key insights we had during this time was we talked to a lot of people about how did they do pricing? Like, how do you do that? Like, what? what? And so we talked to Nathan Barry, we talked to Rob Walling, I talked to Jason Cohen, uh, talked to Ben Ornstein, just a bunch of folks. The, oh, and uh, uh, Patrick Campbell from uh, Price Intelligently, mm. um, What's his other thing? Anyway, and so they were talking about pricing around the kind of the value metric, like what do people want more of? And in podcasting, we're like, well, what they want more of is more downloads, more listens. And that's also what ends up costing you more as a podcasting host is the bandwidth. And so we're like, okay, well, that's probably a good metric to base our pricing around. And then I had this other thought of, you know, something like, 80% of podcasts get less than a thousand downloads in their first 30 days. And so most shows actually have very low download numbers. And I thought, you know, if you're getting started out, or even if you are just into podcasting, you probably want to have multiple podcasts. Like for myself, by the time, by that time, I'd probably had, you know, I don't know, five shows, and some of them were in active production and others weren't. And I thought, you know what? I think if we offered unlimited podcasts for one monthly price, but the pricing was based on the number of downloads you got per month, I think that would kill because then you're incentivizing folks to start more shows. And if you're really, again, whether you're inside of a company or outside of a company or, uh, you know, a prosumer or an enterprise customer, the idea of starting more shows is probably attractive and not penalizing people for starting more podcasts. And so, especially when you're experimenting and you don't really know, you don't have like sort of like product market fit yet, so to speak, like with your content. Yeah. And once you get it, you may like really hone in on one show, but you might try out a bunch of different concepts before one really sticks. Yeah, that was exactly it. It was like, because I'd launched multiple shows so I could see, well, this one really kind of resonated, but this one didn't. Or, um, and I was also doing experiments. Like I wrote a book and then I did the audio book as a private podcast feed. And so I had that in my account. And for most folks if you're on Libsyn or any of those other ones, you're paying for every additional show you add. And so uh, that that uh, insight turned out to be uh, kind of a game changer for us early on because nobody else was doing multiple podcasts for one price a month. Everyone was charging per additional show. Uh, oh, interesting. And so we a lot of folks, that was one way we were able to get people to switch initially is they said, well, I've got four shows on Libsyn. Why don't I just switch to you? And uh, it's kind of, it's not super difficult to import a podcast and then to forward your old RSS feed. So yeah, right, yeah. early on that played, that that helped us for sure. Was the idea that they would save money by switching? 
yeah, that was definitely, that was part of it is that they would save money. And also just the idea of being empowered. They were like, oh yeah, like if I had no limits on the number of podcasts I could start, I could do all of these experiments. And so uh, that was attractive. And for new customers, you know, we had a, like a VC firm came to us and all of the partners want their own show. And so when you're looking around, it's like, okay, who are we going to choose? It's like, well, and businesses, pricing is so funny because it's it's like, okay, this might cost you an additional $15 a month or $10 a month for, for another podcast. But when people bump into limits like that, they really don't like it. And they want the future to kind of be wide and open. Like we could start as many podcasts as we want on this platform. And so with, with firms like that, it was also attractive or agencies. It was attractive. The idea that they could have a bunch of podcasts all under one roof and, uh, not have to pay more for each one they added. Yeah. What kind of initial users did you get that were, so it sounds like most of them are attracted by that as like kind of the main value proposition. Who is that most valuable for? Well, so this is the weird thing. So I'd been building this audience forever in the bootstrapper community. You know, I had a mailing list of about 10,000 people and I had uh, probably about 20,000 people following me on Twitter. And initially I thought, okay, most of our audience is going to kind of come from this group, right? Like we'll get the startups through here. We'll get the, all the venture funded people through here. We'll get the VC firms through here. We'll get the solopreneurs and the aspirational folks that want to do content. We'll get programmers that want to start programming shows. And that was true in the beginning. So our first, you know, out of our first hundred customers, I think 75 of them came from my audience and, you know, maybe another 15% came from John's network. And then other people just kind of randomly found us. But now we have 2000 customers and yeah, this is this is kind of why uh, I've been uh, interested in this idea of disagreeing with Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans uh, essay a little bit, is sometimes you niche down, like you focus on a niche, and there's so much momentum in that niche, it just works. Or whatever, you, you give it to that niche, and they love it so much, and they share it, and everything about the dynamics of that market work. But in our case, we said, this is podcast hosting for brands, and we put it out there, and we just had thousands of people who were not, did not identify as brands signing up, and in fact, were kind of turned off by it. And so I, I had one- But they signed up anyway. They signed up anyway, but they, they messaged me privately. A lot of these folks were in my audience, and I was able to get some insight. You know, one, one fellow was a YouTuber and had a big audience on YouTube and said- you know, just so you know, I, I signed up, but I was really hesitant to because you are kind of going for this niche. And I thought, well, I don't really fit into that group. So maybe I won't sign up. That might actually be two separate things. One, I thought maybe most of our customers would come from my audience. And that was true initially, but later on that became less true. And second, that this idea of niching, which is very popular, this idea of building something in the beginning just for a specific group. Um, For us anyway, we put it out into the world and it turns out just lots of people have a job 
that they're hiring for, which is I just want podcast hosting. And I don't care right, yeah. if it's for brands or if it's for ballet dancers or if it's for – I just want podcast hosting. And if you can do that for me, that would be great. And maybe maybe we will end up niching down again in the future. But for right now, it seems like – it's almost like you always have to work with whatever momentum is already in the market. And so, you know, we we launched this thing and we're paddling down this river and the river just wants to take us this way. And we might really want to paddle upstream, but uh, the river is kind of taking us this way and we just decided to go with it. And so I think now we say we're podcast hosting for creatives, brands, and professionals. How, when did you sort of realize that your initial uh, brand focus was, was there like a specific moment that that you realized that oh man this may not actually be the thing yeah it was it was mostly getting that message from 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 that youtuber and and also once you have people signing up and you're getting you're in customer support every day you're realizing oh wow there's a lot of folks and in fact maybe we need to adjust our 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 tagline again because we have a lot of hobbyists that sign up and for whatever reason, they're coming to us, even though there's free options available. And it could be that, you know, there's so many reasons. They could be a fan of my writing, and so they sign up. They could, they might just want really good customer support. They might like the fact that they can start multiple podcasts all in one account and manage it all from one dashboard. It might be they really like our podcast player. There's so many reasons that, you know, kind of nudge people over to Transistor. And, but in terms of like a demographic or a specific, you know, uh, market avatar or something, it's a, a huge variety of folks are signing up. Yeah. And, uh, it, it made me revise some of my thinking around, Again, this is this is podcast hosting for blank, um, where I think some markets just don't uh, might not lend themselves to that as much. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe we're actually missing an opportunity. But uh, when I think about it, it's like podcast hosting and podcasting is still really small. There's like mm-hmm. maybe eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand shows. Uh, from what we can tell, you know, a, a lot of that growth is coming from Anchor, and but a lot of those shows are no longer in production. Like they po- right. they pod fade really quickly, and so it's possible that there's only like 125,000 or 200,000 active podcasts in production right now. And when you compare that to any other medium like YouTube, there's 36 million YouTube channels with 10 or more subscribers. Right. Uh, blogging, there's 550 million blogs. And I don't think audio will actually ever get there. I don't think we're going to be as big as either writing or video. And so that makes me think, okay, our our market has a cap. Like it's it's going to, or it has a ceiling, sorry. And it's going to be lower than blogging. And it's going to be lower than video. And also, in terms of like our closest competitors, Libsyn, 
And from what I can tell, they have 66,000 podcasts hosted on Libsyn that show up in Apple uh, Podcasts. And I go, man, 66,000, that's the market leader. They're like the only public company that's doing podcast hosting uh, besides Spotify now with the Anchor acquisition. It's like, man, that's, that's so small. Right. And so if our ceiling is that low, does it make sense to then niche down within this group of 125,000 or 200,000 active podcasts and say, well, no, no, no. We're just for these people. It just feels like right. the overall market isn't big enough. And so I, I think for us, at least, it makes sense to say, no, if you want to start a podcast and you want this kind of service and this kind of support and this kind of setup, Transistor's perfect for you. And so far, that's working out pretty good. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, the main the main reason usually... I feel like to like focus on a niche is because there's a set of people who are like totally served in the wrong way, underserved, overserved, whatever. Something just doesn't fit their needs. And and the guess is, hey, it's a big enough set that'll support the business, right? All the fixed costs and what like time, whatever that go into it. Yeah. And um it sounds like there's kind of two things you're saying. One is that maybe that is too small, but two is that actually um people are signing up for transistor even without having to focus on some segment you know, in the market, yeah. it's like you're getting growth anyway. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a good way to put it. I think because it's so easy to um, reverse those. So what you said is, if I noticed a group that's super hungry for something and they're not being served and everything, every characteristic characteristic about this group tells me that they just do not like the incumbents, well, and if there's enough of those folks in motion, then yeah, you should go after it. Um, but at the beginning, especially before you've launched anything and you're just kind of like, you're just guessing like, no, yeah. we should be the podcast hosting for businesses. That's what we should be. But you don't, you're not basing that on anything. That's just what you feel like, right? That's just your, your, right, totally. your feeling. My wife experiences this all the time because- in our house, she's the one that does all the fixing. She buys all the power tools, everything. And she often has this feeling in Home Depot, like nothing, like um, she doesn't want anything just for women. She doesn't want anything for just for moms. She just wants to go and buy a drill. Now, in the midst of that, she wants to be treated with respect, but there's, she doesn't want to be pandered to in any sort of, like there's... There's, right. there's, she doesn't need a unique product. She doesn't need, it's not like, let's paint the skill saw. Pink yeah. We don't, she, like she doesn't want to pink, <laughs> a, a pink skill saw. Right now, if there was a group of women that did want that, that, that could be interesting, but I'm just saying sometimes it's easier in, in your marketing boardroom to say, you know what, if we want to reach that demographic, we got to paint all the tools pink. It's like, no, right. you just imagined that you're, you're just making that up. If there's no evidence for it, don't do that. If but if there's if you wake up the next morning and there's a hundred women lined up at Home Depot with signs that are saying, you know, give us these kind of tools, then sure you should listen. But often we're just <laughs> we're just making these decisions outside of any sort of uh, visible demand, and visible demand yeah. is something I'm thinking about a lot. Visible demand to me is 
every morning I wake up and I go to this coffee shop and there's people lined up waiting for coffee every single morning. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and that's also going to be true. And so far in podcast hosting, every day I wake up and I open Transistor's business doors and I see a lineup of people who want to sign up for podcast hosting. And so that to me said, oh, okay, there's demand for this, right? There's a lot of businesses and a lot of ideas and a lot of segments where they say, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to open a business for which there is no visible demand. There's nobody lining up here, here in Vernon. I live in this small little town, the small little ski town. Uh, there's a noticeable difference between the lineup at the bubble tea place and the lineup at the coffee place. It's just yeah. the, the bubble tea place opens up its store every day and nobody's waiting in line for bubble tea. Right. And there's just something about that distinction that resonates with me, especially when I think about people starting new businesses. And even actually now that I think about, you know, how we're going to grow Transistor going forward is eventually we're going to open up the door and maybe there won't be as many people in line. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, and we got to figure out what those reasons are and kind of act accordingly. Yeah, totally. I'm curious, like when you talk to, you know, your customers that are signing up these days, like what, what do they say about, um, why they chose you? Like, what's the thing transistors better at than anyone? Else? I mean, it really depends. Uh, we still get a lot of folks signing up because we offer multiple podcasts for one price. Word of mouth is, is very big. Um, a lot of our traffic does come through search and through these kind of these authoritative sites that do like articles and then comparisons between the different hosting platforms. In those cases, people are, it's very much based on feeling, it seems. There's some rationale of like, we need these features and we don't need these features. But when two companies come up and they're very similar, there's what nudges them one way or the other seems to be emotional. And I'm still trying to figure that out a little bit. Yeah, kind of like design quality, marketing communications quality, that kind of stuff. You're just like evidence of thoughtfulness and that they are like me. They understand people like me because if the packaging is really sick, then like it's probably good inside too. Um, a little bit of that maybe. Some of it's packaging. A lot of it is real is customer support. I, I think the – I can't remember who said this. I think it was Addy Pinar from – uh, originally from Woo Themes, and uh, he just, what did he just sell? He just sold uh, his latest one to uh, Campaign Monitor. But in an old, old talk, he said, uh, you know, software as a service. Most of what people are signing up for is the service, right. not the software. <laughs> and so we've had this, you know, live chat widget on our site from the day one, even as a small company of only two people. Uh, we just hired someone to help us in the UK part-time, but up till now, it's just been us. Just offering amazing service when you're one, one of the proprietors and you really care about each customer. I mean, I've jumped on so many calls. I've, I've done so many videos. Uh, I, was, I was like manually recording videos and uploading them to YouTube as unlisted videos and I finally just started using Loom because yeah. like three or four times a day, I'm, I'm recording videos for folks. 
podcasting is confusing as heck. I mean, just just to even have to under, explain like, okay, at some point you have to tell them what an RSS feed is, but people don't care about the RSS feed. Right. They say, how do I get yeah, exactly. my audio onto Spotify? That's what I care about. And and helping them bridge that gap, uh, especially at you know various levels of... Um, expertise you know some folks have all the recording equipment and some folks have an iphone um and yeah that's been interesting jumping on those calls the other day as an example i Mm -hmm. did this call with a gal that works for an agency and she was probably i mean probably later in her career she wasn't like just fresh out of college and she's seem to be quite accomplished, but she's just like right, yeah, yeah, being yeah. honest and saying, I have no idea how this works. <laughs> like she said, I did a little bit of Googling and this just makes no sense. And I just took 40 minutes and just walked her through everything. Here's how it works. And to be able to do those calls and help folks out, and it it scales in the sense that I think she'll probably become a customer and probably tell a bunch of people about us. And it also scales in the sense that right after I recorded a video that I uploaded to YouTube that, you know, can then get shared. It is tricky to figure out what nudged people over to us versus what nudged them away from us. And I ask that question all the time. I ask people why they switch all the time. You know, we have this opportunity when they're importing an RSS feed to say, so what, what, why, why isn't it working out at Libsyn? Like, what's going on there? And, and, you know, there's a bunch of reasons that people get frustrated or fed up or just ready for a change. Um, and sometimes they're emotional, like, oh, I listen to your podcast and I just resonate with the journey that you and John are, are on. And I talked to my boss and he said it was okay if we switch. Okay. Uh, other folks are like, oh, I'm just ticked off with the, their interface and right. the way they organize things really bugs me. That's another reason. Uh, you know, there's all these reasons and which is why I wonder if just staying focused on the job, which is ultimately people just want their audio to be on Apple podcasts and Spotify. They want that emotional satisfaction of recording something, uploading it, and then seeing it on Spotify. And I'm, I'm almost certain that when that happens, like when they submit to Spotify, they're opening up their phone and they're showing their friends and their spouse, like, look at, look at my podcast is right here on Spotify, right next to Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift is my show. Right. And there's that, that excitement, which by the way, I would love, if you ever get anyone from Apple podcasts on here, I would love to be the third party in that conversation because I think they are missing out on so many opportunities uh, number one is right now because Spotify has this is a total aside, sorry. Because Spotify has a great submission API, what we've noticed is what people will do is they will upload their first episode and then they'll notice that Apple Podcast seems kind of complicated to submit to. So they just click submit to Spotify. It's on Spotify, usually within five, 10 minutes. And then they're sharing that with everybody on Twitter and everything else. Apple's process is just a hellscape. It's so. I, in fact, most of the most of the support we do 
and maybe I should be careful what I wish for because, uh, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of our support is just supporting Apple Podcasts. And it's such so difficult to get your show on there. Oh, it's so, you need an Apple ID. And I recommend to folks to not use their personal Apple ID to, because if you want to transfer the show to someone else or if it's for work, like set up a new Apple ID. The Apple ID needs to be verified in iTunes, the iTunes store, either on your desktop or on your phone. So if you're a PC user and you don't have an iPhone and you don't have iTunes installed, you have really no way of doing this. It's so silly. It's like, it's like okay, and then you have to submit your RSS feed to them. It's very like copy and paste, you know, put it in. And then you have to wait five yep. days for them to manually approve it. It's like, this makes no sense. So I love Apple because they've kept podcasting open. I love Apple because, you know, so many people are using their directory. And, you know, if you submit to Spotify and Apple, you've basically got everything covered. There's so much they could improve uh, on their side. Anyway, sidebar over. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of go back to like why people use Transistor, it seems like one of the big things is just accessibility, whether that's through customer service or like, you know, content you create with like YouTube videos of how to do stuff or whatever. It's just kind of like feels like you're going for something that's maybe more um, approachable and friendly and like committed to making it easy for you. Does that sound? Yeah, as simple as we can. Uh, and there's still some drop up drop off spots that we're, <laughs> we're working on. But right. You know, because John had built a podcast hosting platform before, he had learned from that, right? Okay, here's some things that I'm going to architect differently. We have tried to keep it as simple as as possible. So the the interface is very simple. It feels mostly like posting something on Tumblr or WordPress. Or if they if folks have done that, they can probably create a podcast and post it on Transistor. Yeah. It's not as simple as Anchor because Anchor does all the recording and editing in the app. But in some ways, we don't want those customers. Like I actually uh, recommend Anchor and SoundCloud to folks that are clearly like just getting started. But if you like our sweet spot is if you've already purchased a microphone, that then you're probably a good transistor customer, and we we will do everything we can both with product and with service to help you do something great. And so uh, the other big thing is like hosting a basic website for your podcast. We do that. I re- we have really nice embeds that, you know, John has learned from previous iterations and, and made better. Uh, analytics as well. Like everything is simple enough, but powerful enough that if you're a business and you want CSV exports for every one of your uh, your shows, people can just do that and, and get those. So I, I feel like even though we're serving kind of a wide breadth of customers, all the way up to like seriously, like enterprise companies that are huge uh, and should we should probably be charging more money to, uh, you know, we're serving this big breadth of customers, but we're helping them all all along the way. And then the, the new thing that we just released as kind of a hedge, because it is competitive, podcast hosting. And like you and I have talked about before, there is part of it that is 
just a commodity in the same way that website hosting is kind of a commodity. Um, so as a hedge, we built this private podcast feature that allows you to create uh, a show and then add subscribers to it. So you add email addresses or you have an invite link as a part of your onboarding. And then every person you add gets this individual email that links to an individual landing page that allows them to open their individual feed in whatever app they want. Right, right. And we have folks using that for employee training, for employee onboarding, for, um, you know, some folks have membership sites and they're doing that as a part of like people pay them for something. And then in the welcome email, they'll say, oh, here's a link to your your private podcast. Right, totally. So that is interesting because it allows us to price higher. We end up pricing per private subscriber. Mm, yeah. And uh, there's actually some expansion revenue there that, you know, we wouldn't have normally had. And it gives us something else. Like if the podcast hosting space gets really, really competitive, we at least have something that differentiates us that, you know, we could try to grow while we're getting attacked from this other side. Yeah, right? yeah. Totally. I'm curious how it's evolved, like the podcast hosting market, since you first, um, you know, started working on it. I've said this kind of all from the beginning. Like, so when we came onto the scene, notably with all the leverage we had, right? We had all this leverage that we could use to kind of propel us, I think, maybe higher than some other folks that had just started podcast hosting companies. So in right, the yeah. new group, we kind of became one of the top picks right away. And we got the benefit of that for a long time. And then people kind of, partly probably because of our our openness, like we were sharing all of our revenue numbers and we we're sharing all of our decisions and journey on our podcast. Um, folks have started copying the business model, copying the pricing, copying you know a lot of the things that we offer and that's been tricky. It's one of the things that actually, in terms of like the job that I hire your newsletter to do, it just came, like when you wrote that intro post where you're saying, you know, a lot of, you're basically saying, I'm really geeking out about strategy. And I was like, you know what? I could probably use a dose of strategy now because I've got to think about this now in a more sophisticated way. And so if we're going to go back to this metaphor, because I actually like this metaphor of the rushing river. I think most new companies should try to find a rushing river as opposed to a, a little niche stream somewhere. Uh, just because it's way easier to put your cup out and just capture some of that energy. Or if you're in the canoe, like the river just takes you as opposed to like yeah. just kind of floating slowly down a stream. I think it's better to be at a, a market that's moving really fast. But now we're kind of past the easy parts. Like the river moved really fast. We we got taken up with it. We grew really fast. I mean, 20 to 30% month over month, some months. And now we're hitting the rough water. And now things aren't as easy as they were before. Yeah, I think that's one reason I wanted to join your newsletter. That's one reason I've started to think, okay, this now we actually need to figure out uh, you know, how to steer this canoe or steer yeah, some technical things to get over this next little bit of uh, of difficulty 
because we've definitely seen, wow, okay, we don't have the advantage of being the new kid on the block anymore. Now there's new, new kids on the block that we're getting compared to. That's a very different place to be. Like when you're new, yeah. you just yeah. have all of this. Part of, the, part of what attracts people to you is just the fact that you're new. Like, like if you're starting something, a brand new podcast, it's like, oh, well, I'll go with the brand new people because all their stuff is fresh. And if you're thinking about switching off your current provider, it's like, oh, wow, I'm going to switch to them because it's fresh. But then, you know, now we're, we're two years old and we're not so fresh anymore. And so we've lost that advantage. Now there's new people that are fresh. And I, there's this Rodney Mullen quote that I think about all the time. He's a pro skateboarder, one of the originals. And he has this saying where he says, uh, like, you only win once. And after that, you're just defending. And I think about that all the time because it's like, he said, you know, it was super fun when he was just like climbing the ranks and like beating all these other pros. And then he got to the top. I mean, we're not at the top yet, so we've still got room, but we got to the top. Sorry, he got to the top. And then it was really not fun because now all he's trying to do is maintain his position, right? Now he's just trying to ward off all of these attacks from these other people. And in order to go but down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I feel a little bit of that. It's like once you've reached a certain spot, then all of a sudden there's all these hungry folks that come up behind you. And now you're trying to maintain your spot. You're also trying to gain ground, but you're also trying to ward off these attacks from these other folks. And yeah, I'm not sure how to deal with that. I mean. Yeah, totally. Are they like competing on price? What's the kind of, what's the kind of axis of competition? One is they just took our business model exactly like $19, $49, $99, uh, exact same amount of monthly downloads included and uh, unlimited podcasts for one price. And then they just do some other things a little bit different and so enough to attract people. And then using the leverage of, because um, we're not really from the podcast. I've been trying to codify this. I don't know if I want to, I can do it live, but you, you know some of this, but podcasting, like the podcasters, if you had a Venn diagram, there's like, let's just call it like a thoughtful narrative podcast. That's like the New York scene. It's like, it's very- public radio diaspora. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. That's perfect. (laughs) Like NPR, Gimlet, they're all in that tradition. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. But then there's this other huge group, which is like the make money online podcasters. Um, Very kind of like- uh, aspirational, like start your own business uh, type. And a lot of podcast movement, the the main conference is that group. I mean, we certainly serve both groups. Uh, and then there's, there's probably a few other groups I'm missing. Well, I think branded podcasts is probably another one. Um, and so there's a Venn diagram of who we serve. But um, some of our competitors are definitely have more sway in the make money online crowd. Oh, gotcha. And so, um, and that's been a constant tension actually, because part of me likes that group. Like there's, there's a part of that group I really don't like, but you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I like, I like shows, uh, like some of my favorite podcasts are 
bootstrappers sharing their journey. And so I like that group, but you know, I, I dislike it the more further you get over to the really kind of hardcore, like make money online. Get rich quick. Yeah. Get rich yeah, quick. Totally. And meanwhile, John is really steeped in the Chicago scene, which is more kind of like the NPR, uh, and actually maybe even a different, um, you know, like, uh, shows like, uh, do by Friday and friendshipping and, you know, like a, a lot of these shows that are, have a different sensibility and we've, we, we've debated about, should we just target, you know, one kind of podcaster? And again, I think it's too small to do that completely, but anyway, that was a big thinking, me thinking out loud, but I would say that some of our competitors definitely have a stronger foothold in make money online. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it's not okay. It, it's really hard to tell at this point. Yeah. It's interesting because it feels like it, um, maybe this is what like a fragmenting market kind of feels like, or if it's like the main thing that people want, the main thing that matters is I can upload a file and it gives me an RSS feed and the RSS feed can go into like Spotify and Apple podcasts and everything else you try and do is like, doesn't matter that much to most people. Yeah. And what ends up being the deciding factor can be weird stuff like, well, this person has a podcast that's really popular with this group of people. And so he hired some like freelance developer to make, uh, you know, podcast host. And then like that got a lot of those people because they just know him and trust him. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you end up comp- competing on kind of like non-core almost. Like it's more of like competing on like market access, like access to certain groups of people or trust and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And actually hearing you talk about it like that is a little bit of a, a little bit of a rude awakening <laughs> because the way you articulated it is, is, is actually probably close to the truth. This is what's hard about being an entrepreneur is I just, in my feelings, I want things to be different in so many ways. But the, the reality is, I think you're right, is that I do think that a big part and it's the reason that podcast movement, for example, continues to be kind of the podcast conference and everybody goes regardless of your sensibility, even though the primary focus ends up being like how to make money from your podcast, because a lot of the growth in podcasting are folks starting those shows. And again, part of me loves that, like that there's a big group of that customer that I really love serving. And some of them, have made it. Like some of them have are using our tools and have a bunch of people supporting them on Patreon and everything's going really well. Similar to maybe Medium, similar to maybe ConvertKit, similar to uh, uh, Substack, there's going to be a big group of folks that try and it doesn't work. And so there's going to be built-in churn there. And there's just right, there's yeah. just some things you have to accept with that that particular kind of aspirational market that eventually wants to make money from the thing. Whereas branded podcasts, it's a smaller target market. But some of these folks, like the Basecamp podcast, I think it's just, they just have a point of view and they just want to be able to get it out in the world. There's no return on investment, right? Um, And there's a lot of shows like that where these you know, uh, for better or for better and for worse, uh, VCs and tech CEOs have margin in their life that allows them to be thinking about things and want they want to share those thoughts with other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
So branded podcasts are interesting to me. By the way, I did love that post of yours recently about creating margins and the importance of that. I've been lacking that lately. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, it was great. <laughs> I think this has to go into strategy. I like the vector of strategy that you have been attacking lately, which is competition. There's this whole other vector of strategy that is so difficult because once you start applying these filters, it's like, why would anyone become an entrepreneur? But product founder fit, founder market fit, both of those things often determine how much margin you end up having. Like if you're a WordPress freelancer, it's likely that your life's just not great because WordPress breaks all the time. The clients that you're going to attract aren't fantastic. There's just all sorts of kind of inherent problems with that market that are going to make it difficult um, for a lot of folks to have enough margin. But then you add this other, these other things like, well, yeah, but what's your competition like? And what's, you know, what's the ceiling on your growth? How fast can this thing grow? Is there going to be enough, you know, and they're all complicated. How much supply and demand is there in this market? Because that's going to determine, you know, mostly how much margin you have. If there's if there's a lot of demand totally. but not a ton of good supply, well, you can you can get a lot more margin. So, yeah, it's tricky. This the it the the things that pull you kind of from side to side are sometimes overwhelming, but other times are. <laughs> Every day I wake up and I think that everything's going to go away. Like everything we've built is just going to evaporate. But on the other hand, of everything I've done, this definitely feels like I have the most margin. I'm, I'm, what I'm banking on in terms of strategy is now I have the time and the margin to consider, for example, like viewpoints like yours, where you're bringing all these things to the table and all this research to the table that I actually have time to digest and think about as opposed to just rushing out in a reactive way and Googling something and then trying to implement a bunch of stuff because I'm under pressure. My, my hypothesis is that more margin and taking longer to make decisions is actually better in the long run. <laughs> and I guess we'll see if that plays out uh, strategically. But that, that's kind of my feeling is uh, what's worked for John and I so far has been this strategy we call wait and see. (laughs) Yeah. Just like, let's wait six months and see what happens. And so much of the stuff that we were like stressed out about and we thought the sky was falling and we're like, okay, we got to react right now. If we don't add this right now, everything's going to break. We just waited because at the time, John was working full time and we didn't have an option. And then like three months later, it didn't matter. Or three months later, we saw everyone that jumped on that ship and it turns out it was the wrong boat to jump on, right? Uh, And we're still like kind of considering our next moves carefully. So we'll see. We'll see if that works out. Totally. Well, and it's also also to me fascinating that some markets that seem totally commoditized, there end up being these really sticky like – really good products that, that sustain really good businesses for long periods of time. And like, um, I don't know, like fantastic right? It's just like calendar software. Like that's a thing that people have been building for a long time. And sometimes things obviously come and go, maybe they get like acquired 
fast because they raise too much money and it's like whatever. But it's like if if you have the kind of business model that can support like you know um, enduring, um, then then that's obvious. That's a huge advantage. Um, another one that sticks out to me is like um, cultured code with uh, things, the to do list app. It's like what's like the hello world app of pretty much every like like app development framework. It's like a to do list, but like somehow. Things is like this beautiful piece of software that people pay for, even though you can so easily get a free alternative elsewhere. And there's like, I think you can always find like an edge. It may not always support like a, like a Google or whatever. Obviously it's like extremely rare to find something that ends up becoming that, but like to find something that becomes a, you know, 20, 40, 50, hundred million dollar a year business is like, um, I, I mean, I have no clue what fantastic and what things actually do every year in revenue, but yeah, yeah. I'm so, I'm glad you mentioned that there's I, I've had this other thought that I could be wrong about. All of this is within a context. Like what we're talking about right now is within a context. And maybe it was, was it you that was talking about this? <laughs> it was. Um, everything we're talking about is within a context of there being these massive companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, and then, you know, even if you go down a level, Spotify, et cetera, that are sucking the oxygen out of the market. Like they just, they, their fire is burning so hot. It's just taking all the oxygen out of what, you know, maybe in the old days, a small little two-person company might have been able to attack. And that's interesting to me from a competitive standpoint, just that we know that less businesses are getting started. And for every transistor story, there's like all these other folks that are trying and there's so many things where it's like, well, why even bother? Because the gorillas are just so big. Yeah. That being said, my other thought kind of underneath that in that context is that for most startups, especially I, I don't know about venture-funded startups as much, but I'm just talking about companies that want to be profitable. People that want to start a business and be able to make profit and have a good life. For most of those businesses, even if you're small, the key is to keep the main thing the main thing. Meaning, I see a lot of folks that are starting businesses that are ancillary to the main thing. Like, oh, I'm going to add, I'm going to build a, a add-on for this thing. And there's just not enough. I mean, add-ons in, in podcasting are a great example. Like there's not enough market to just have a podcast review service, um, like a podcast, a, a service that aggregates all your podcast reviews. Or there's not enough market to have, um, you know, I've heard every idea like, oh, I'm going to do just commenting for podcasts. I'm going to do just voicemail for podcasts. The, every time you're building something that's ancillary to the main thing, I think it's way harder. And when I look at the bootstrapped companies, especially that made it, but even in the startup world, they're almost all people who kept the main thing, the main thing, like uh, superhuman. They're going after email. Email is the main thing, especially in B2B. Like, what do you need? I need email. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ma- yeah. Mailchimp is the main thing. What do I need if I'm a business? Almost every business needs a way to send email marketing. That's the main thing. Now you could create an add-on for Mailchimp, 
Like maybe you just have really beautiful subscription forms and they're better than MailChimp's. But as soon as your ancillary, um, is, is that the right word? <laughs> ancillary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. As soon as your ancillary, uh, you're, you're no longer the main thing and you just go way down people's priorities. Most people wake up in the morning and they're just looking for the main thing. I need website hosting. Oh, so now you've got Card and you've got um, Squarespace, obviously, but even like Webflow and all of these companies that are making it, they're always in the same category. It's like project management software, Basecamp, you know, uh, and Trello. There's very few kind of like ancillary products that end up going crazy unless the market is so, the market for that thing is so nuts, like, clear bit for Gmail. Well, the market for that is so big and so crazy that creating an add-on makes business sense. But yeah, the main thing there has to be so big that you can kind of like, you know, hitch your, your, uh, cart to it and it actually works. But, um, there, a lot of markets just aren't big enough for that. And so, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot. Yeah. There's kind of like a main flow in podcasting. That's like, you know, people have to have like a time and a place to talk. There has to be sound coming out of their mouths that goes into something that catches that sound that has to go into a computer. And then it has to like get created as an MP3 at some point with like mixed in with a bunch of stuff, or maybe mostly just like the raw MP3. And then that has to go in like a server somewhere on a CDN. And like, there's just like this main flow of like value. That's like, if you're some little add on to the side or whatever, it's like, it's so hard to get anyone's attention and it's even like just in general. And then it's even harder when you're like not in the main flow of stuff that people need. Yeah. Yeah. And actually even thinking about that, cause you have that great map of the podcast industry. If, oh, yeah. if you think about the recording apps, think about already how much more fragmented that is in the sense that, you know, my preference might be to record on Skype and then edit in GarageBand. Oh, but my preference is to record and edit in Anchor. Oh, but my preference is to record in Zencaster. And then, and so already the the demand is fragmented. Whereas everybody gets to podcast hosting and everybody needs some form of podcast hosting. It's like it is more the main thing than all of the other things. And I was thinking about this. Uh, I really love my friend, Jack. He has this CMS called Statomic. And I love it. It's just like amazing. And I think for a personal license for it, it's $2.99 or something. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, Jack, like so much of your value chain is getting sucked up by DigitalOcean. Because people, people host it themselves. And people eventually... You know, you could choose whatever CMS you want, but eventually you need a a way to host it. And so that's kind of like the main thing in that value chain. Does that make sense? Um, You probably have a better way of articulating it, but that's that's interesting to me that, oh, wow, like he's built this amazing software that in a different dimension should be worth way more than the hosting. It's just like his thing is the main thing. Like he's done it so well. But he ends up his his the value of his product ends up getting subverted by the hosting problem, which is I need a place to host it. Now maybe in a different dimension, hosting is like like 
<laughs> I don't know, like hosting is is powered by what's that thing that everyone's into now? Uh, it's like physics computers, uh, quantum computing. So in the future, oh, quantum computing, yeah. In, in, in another dimension, hosting is like so cheap and plentiful because of quantum computing. Nobody cares, and nobody pays for it. But in that dimension, people really care about the CMS, and so they pay like tons of money for it because it's so valuable. But right, yeah. in our dimension, it's like this is how things are, and it's so hard to swim against that current to say. Like even for him to charge a one-time fee so people can use this CMS, it's it's just hard. And so my advice to him is like, you should offer hosting, just like Ghost offers hosting, because right, some yeah, people yeah. just want to pay for the thing. Like that, what do they ultimately want? It's a website hosted somewhere. And yes, the software is like part of it, but in our dimension, it, that part's almost been downplayed in a weird way. And it it's the hosting that's actually worth it. Right. Well, there's something interesting about it, which is like um, you interact with the CMS more. It shapes more of your actual user experience of like the person who's running the website. But um, that's code that he wrote once and then, you know, he'll continue to add to or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like there's no ongoing cost for him. If you go, if it's like an essentially open source or like licensed mm-hmm. source where you like buy the source code and then you run it on your own servers, it's like... The, the server that's actually hosting your website has to be, like, hooked up to the internet and, like, with electricity and, like, do operating system upgrades and all that kind of crap. So there's, like, this, like, baseline level of, like, ongoingness to it that makes it, um, I guess, impossible to be free. And so, therefore, it's not kind of a thing. The other interesting thing about that, so when Derek Thompson in his book Hitmakers talks about, you know, basically people want things that are familiar to them but just a little bit different. Oh, totally, yeah. That is so... And then the his second thing is that distribution almost always wins. It's like viral is like not nearly as much of a thing as just finding a good channel that just kills it, right? But if you think about like human beings are used to doing things. And so in our dimension, like I said, we're just used to paying for website hosting. It's like, we know that we have to pay for Squarespace. Like, we just know that. And so we're we're accustomed to that. And if someone came, you know, and and goes about it from the other way, it's difficult. Like Like, going back to the CMS thing, one of his options is to say, uh, yeah, just like pay for the CMS and you download it as a client on your machine and then you post for free to Netlify or GitHub Pages. But it's still, just because you're subverting the way it is, that doesn't necessarily mean that people will automatically then give you all of that value. Right. Yeah, because it's something that um, that people have to learn and, and expectations are hard to, I think, hard to change. Like there's a lot of path dependence, I think, to like the way that the economy and different stacks of like, oh, this layer captures all the value or whatever. Like yeah. some of it's a little arbitrary, but it's just like expectations are a thing. Like kind of, it's one thing that's fascinating is like, what's the difference between like YouTube videos and Netflix videos? I feel like in a lot of cases, equally entertained, if not more by some stuff I see on YouTube, yeah. than stuff I see on Netflix, but Netflix, I just, it feels like movies. And so I have to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes. And, and you think, and this is why, uh, I don't know if you've done a, th- th- it would be fascinating for you to do a kind of in-depth strategy look at Disney Plus because Disney Plus falls perfectly into this, which is 
I want something that's familiar, but just a little bit different. And so we already have Netflix. We already have, um, you know, all of these uh, Amazon Video Prime or whatever. They take that idea and then they just twist it a little bit. And I don't know how well it's doing, but my sense is that it's doing well because yeah. they were able to capitalize on, yeah, you, you know what streaming video is, right? Well, here's that, but just a little bit different. And we're going to subvert some things that, because uh, they did change some stuff. Like, remember they used to lock down every, like they would only release like The Lady and the Tramp only every once in a while on VHS. Right, right, right. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's like, we're, it's from the vault. Yes, from know? the vault. But now it's like, you get everything. We're not holding it back anymore. And there's something attractive about that too. Anyway, sorry, we, we got off, off topic, but I find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, no, this has been awesome though. I know, I know you got to run really soon. Before we go, is there any other stuff that um, you want to make sure we get in? Like, uh, you know, I'm especially interested in anything around like, you know, new stuff you're thinking about, like what may be next, like what's on the horizon, all that kind of stuff. Something you said earlier does stick with me, which is you said something about like a lot of this is just about how long you can last. That is kind of the whole thing of, of business. Like the longer you last, the more you win. And um, every year that you last is another year that you're, and your chances of like lasting longer kind of go up every year you last longer, right? Like it's just, yeah. And so I do think about that a lot of, you know, there's some pressure on John and I to hire more. There's some pressure on John and I to add a bunch more features and stuff and, or complicate our business. Even like, um, like eventually I need to go to podcast movement, but I just, I don't really want to go. And so, and it, it feels like a complicating thing in my life. And so I just haven't yet. And mm-hmm. I think this constant kind of simplification, arranging our lives so that we can go the distance is an interesting strategy. You keep our burn rate really low, um, you know, keep serving customers the best that we can, but not try to hang on too tightly to customers that want to leave and optimize for the long term as opposed to even quarter by quarter. I mean, I, I'm still new, so I don't know exactly how we're going to do that. But this business feels so different than the other things I've been a part of, even other startups I've been a part of. Like yeah. that line in my blog post where I say, um, you know, in a business that doesn't have margin, your boss kind of downloads all their anxiety onto you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in that position if I can, if I can help it. And so I've been very careful, like, let's keep as much margin as we can here. So, and sometimes you can't, like sometimes things just, you know, whatever things happen, but the healthier that John and I are, I think that's an advantage. Um, The lower our costs are, I think that's an advantage. The simpler our app is, I think that's an advantage. And we, we are kind of always um, being careful about what, yeah, what we kind of engage in. And then I think the other big question for us eventually will be like, once we hit 1 million annual recurring revenue, 
then some of, I don't think we want to get acquired, but there's always that fear of how long is this going to last and how long can we compete? Right. And so once we hit 1 million in annual recurring revenue, then the acquisition multiples start to make a, be a little bit more interesting. Um, and so we're thinking about that long-term too. Like, I don't think we want to sell, but it would be nice to get up to at least $1 million a year so that we're attractive enough to an acquiring company. And yeah, so again, we'll probably try to get there slowly. Uh, like we're not in a huge rush, but I do think about that because maybe, you know, this podcasting thing, maybe it is just here for a little bit. And so I, I don't want to delude myself to thinking like, this is going to be here forever. I hope it's here forever. Right. Yeah. But I don't know. And yeah, especially in technology. I mean, the internet, like it's, uh, things, things, uh, are volatile. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Even, even like the main things are volatile, right? It seems, I mean, yeah, it seems like we're onto something and there's all sorts of bets that we're making. Like we're betting, we're kind of betting against ever, every venture capital firm that's uh, investing in podcasting right now. Because they are all betting that it's all going to become YouTubeified. It's all going to go under one platform that is not open. We're betting that it stays open, that RSS continues to be the standard or a, a something like RSS, and that it will continue to be have this advantage of being open and distributed, but also have all of these downsides, which are, you know, whatever. That's the future we're betting on and hoping for. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Like, you know, may, there, could, there is a future where Spotify, for example, just gobbles up so much of that and they own the whole creation and consummation, consuming <laughs> end of it. Consumption? Consumption, consummation, yeah. that's the wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Although I do kind of like the idea of people finally listening to a podcast episode that's been created as sort of the consummation of the uh, (laughs) active podcast. Yeah, yeah. So there's a future where that's true, but we're betting on the opposite future. And yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out too. Well, this has been awesome. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Thanks again to Nathan for that. Uh, Yeah, definitely go check out Divinations, D-I-V-I-N-A-T-I-O-N-S dot substack dot com. The link is in the show notes as well. And to close off the show, I want to thank our Patreon supporters. We have Ward from memberspace.com, Eric Lima, James Sowers with userinput.io, Travis Fisher, Matt Buckley from nicethings.io, Russell Brown, Evandro Sassy, Pradyuma Schembecker at clearstack.io, Noah Prail, Robert Simplicio at simplicio.com, Colin Gray at elitu.com, Josh Smith at hellosift.com, Ivan Kokovic, Brian Ray, Shane Smith, Austin Loveless, Simon Bennett, Michael Sitver at letterjoy.co, Paul Jarvis and Jack Ellis, Dan Buda, danbuda.com, Darby Frey, Samori Augusto, Dave Young, Brad from Canada, Sammy Schuchert, Mike Walker, Adam Duvander, Dave Junta, Junta, and Kyle Fox at getrewardful.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.
Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.